Welcome to the third monthly episode of the QuiCast podcast for the Chamley by the Chamley for the month of March 2022. And here's your host, JamirFan2000. What is up, ladies and gentlemen of the online Jamly? This, of course, here's JamirFan2000 with the third monthly episode of the QuiCast, a Jamir Quai podcast for the Jamley by the Jamley. This, as I mentioned, preface at the beginning of this video in the intro, is, of course, the third monthly episode of the QuietCast podcast for the month of March 2022. When you find this episode of the, this full monthly episode of the QuietCast podcast is I'm going to do a quick rundown of all the latest news concerning the band members and, of course, the band Jamiroquai here in the month of March of 2022. And I'll be doing two complete read-throughs of both the 2013 Return of the Space Cowboy J.K. Penned liner notes, and I'll also be reading a classic interview interview with JK from 1996. As I said, this is going I'm going to start off this episode of the Quietcast podcast with the latest news items for March of 2022. And these following news items are updated as of the date of this recording on March 7th, 2022. Starting in March of 2022 and for throughout the rest of the year, I will be posting a new recorded reoccurring series looking at the greatest moments in celebration of 30 years of the musical and inspirational history of the band Jamiroquai and their band members on my social media from Reddit to Instagram. So keep your eyes up for this new informative content from this recurring series on my social media outlets throughout the rest of 2022. On February 28th through March 3rd of 2022, Jamiroquai's own Derek McKenzie performed alongside the esteemed Brazilian bassist Fernando Rosa at a trio of rival events at the Acid Jazz Cafe in London to the merriment of music fans. You can check out all the great Instagram videos and pictures from these gigs with Derek McKenzie and Fernando Rosa at both of their respective Instagram accounts in your free time. Jamaican white guitarist Rob Harris recently released his second single entitled Herbie Strut from his upcoming solo EP that will hopefully be seeing released sometime in 2022. Uh, Herbie Strut came out in late of February of 2022, and uh, the music video for that great single Herbie Strut from Rob Harris is currently available on his respective YouTube channel, so be sure to check out YouTube to check out that great new video from Rob Harris. Jamiroquai keyboardist Matt Johnson recently hit over 100,000 subscribers on his respective YouTube channel. And uh, much like every other YouTuber that hits a major milestone starting at 100,000 subscribers, he received a plaque from YouTube a show, um, uh, commemorating uh, hitting 100,000 thousand subscribers on his respective YouTube channel. He uh, went ahead and recorded a video of him posing with this new plaque from YouTube uh, hitting 100,000K uh, uh, subscribers on YouTube and you can check out this uh, video for yourself of, of Matt Johnson with his uh, 100K subscribers YouTube plaque on his respective Instagram page. Jamiroquai drummer and DJ extraordinaire Derek McKenzie has announced that he will be doing a DJ tour of Mexico from between March 17th through March 19th of 2022. More information about this uh, upcoming DJ tour of Mexico can be found on his respective Instagram page. The Matt Johnson and Derek McKenzie 2021 single uh, Interstellar Love recently got a remix treatment by Mickey Moore and Andy T. That new remix uh, set for Interstellar Love is currently available exclusively on TrackSource Retain Download and is currently streaming on all other major music streaming platforms. In recent streaming platform edition news, Apple Music, which is a music and a video music video streaming platform, recently added 25 new music video additions to the Jamiroquai Art Artist page on their on their service, including alternate music videos for Half the Man and Black Capricorn Day, all of the top of the pops of Jamiroquai performances from over the years, and of course Jamiroquai's performance video performances at Clapham Common from 2006, which of course all of the aforementioned content can be found on YouTube on their official YouTube channel. 
channel for streaming right now. But uh, all 25 of those new musical additions were added to Apple Music, the music streaming platform, and are available to anybody who uh, pretty much uh, subscribes to that service. So be sure to check out that brand new content that just got added to Apple Music. And finally, another recent fashion line was uh, released uh, during Milan Fashion Week in 2022, inspired by the band Jamiroquai and a lot of American 90s grunge. The, uh, the, the fashion line, which was entitled Palm Angels, was by designer Francisco Rigazzi. And uh, recently there was a companion video uploaded to YouTube with uh, showing off highlights of that new fashion line at Milan Fashion Week. And there's several articles currently available from many fashion uh, period, uh, publications uh, covering this new fashion line that was inspired by Jamiroquai for fall, winter of 2022 into 2023. So be sure to check out all those great articles when you can and checking out this new fashion that was inspired by Jamiroquai. Uh, related links to all the news items that were talked about in this latest news section of this episode of the QuietCast can be found down below in the description area of this episode of the QuietCast podcast on, on Anchor FM and, of course, its import on YouTube. As I said, the, the next uh, piece of this episode of this monthly episode of the QuietCast coming up is a new is a new series I started a few episodes ago here on the QuietCast podcast called Chimera Fan Reads, starting off with me reading an article uh, interview with JK from 1996. Welcome to another section of the QuietCast podcast called Jameer Fan Reads, which is a brand new series I started several episodes ago here on my channel, where I'm reading uh, various uh, segments and passages concerning Jamiroquai and the band members of Jamiroquai, looking back at 30 years of Jamiroquai's musical history. As I did in the last episode, I did I read an interview by, with JK, so I thought I'd keep the trend of new uh, segments of the Jamira Fan Reads uh, series uh, by reading another great interview with JK from 1996, right at the beginning of the Traveling Without Moving era, the big mainstream-breaking era for Jamiroquai, in an article from Blues and Soul magazine for the week of September 17th through the 30th of 1996, in an article called Moving in the Right Direction, written by Susie McClelland. As I said, I'm going to start reading this article right now, so I hope you enjoy this article read-through. It's a Thursday lunchtime and JK looks like he's fallen out of bed. It's not the case, though, rather than he's just fallen out of his Ferrari and scooted into a record company office where his PR and assorted music industry hacks are waiting. He's an hour and a half late, but no one's going to hold it against him. At Sony headquarters, he's the prodigal son. One flash of that charming, disarming grin and its smile, handshakes, and kisses all around. Jamiroquai wife had a busy week. Monday saw them headlining the Kiss stage at the Nottingham Festival, something of a homecoming for the West London boys. The new single, Versatile Cindy, has hit the charts at number three and has been the re requisite flurry of photo shoots, meetings, interviews, and um, in. JK, despite a drawn appearance, is, is his ebullient self. The boy from Ealing with the big hats, big engines, alongside the Ferrari where he has an Aston Martin and a Lamborghini in the garage, and the bigger attitude is coming living at large. With the Monday dates of Jamiroquai tour sold out within hours, the album Traveling on Moving is on the brink of chart domination for the immediate future. Things are really uh, things are looking pretty good, surely? Well, it's fantastic to get the single at number three. I always think these things are going to happen before they do. The last album, to me, didn't merit the success of the first one, although in terms of sales, it did. There were some great bits uh, in both of them. You, can, you can't have whole albums that make you turn around and go, yeah, if you get two or three tunes you can actually really like, like, I've got an album, I've got this, I've got on this album, I've nearly, I've got nearly every tune I can go through and it's all right. It's, def it's definite progression from the second album. 
that's down to good pre-production, starting to write the music a long time before you hit the big studio. I just knew this one would be good. Jay jumps up, lights his breakfast B&H. Yeah, I had, a, I had to make this one good. And in the light of the serious quantities of flack, he's not far wrong about that. Because ever since his first single, When You're Gonna Learn, four years ago, J.K. sure has been on the receiving end. But then a 22-year-old with the persona and the voice of a maverick angel, an eight-album deal, and a soapbox to, is bound to attract trouble. Jamiroquai was as a jazz meteorite taking the genre into a corporate area and remarkably still retaining cred. Emergency Planet Earth, the debut album with EcoVision and Irrepressible Funk, sold 1.5 million copies. The Face magazine put Jay on the front cover. MTV slapped him on the back and on the playlist. People even thought he was Stevie Wonder, for Christ's sake. Life for JK has never ever been so sweet, or at least for the last couple of months. The Sunday Times ran a feature on his classic car habit. Mixed Mag ran that the equivalent of his relationship with drugs. Then came the backlash. And Jay had certainly uh, provided the ammunition. It's hard to take environmental advice from a cocky ex-dope hustler leaning leaning out of his smoke-billowing monster bucks sports car. With JK, it's a social conscience on acid, and he did little to hide the fact. And then came the inane verbal assaults, mainly in the white music press. Jamiroquai were guilty, apparently, of musical colonialism in their blatant exploitation of black music. Looking back, the uh, the argument was facile and uninformed. Uh, Derivation uh, derivation is as old as the business itself. In fact, everyone from Elvis to Pump has reference and back catalog, paying due respects in the process. Nevertheless, such criticism takes its toll. That argument is a load of cock. Hold on, I can't print that. Okay, complete another uh, cock-a-doodle-doo. It's just rubbish. A prime example of people looking so far into something, they lose it. It's something I know about, but it's got absolutely nothing to do with the music you know. Every time I sit down and try to write a song, I don't try to look through 400 years of colonialism and say, oh, now I can write a song. The implication is is it's only black people that can make music. Because there was a guy that just wanted to make make me look stupid. In a way, he made himself look a racist. Somebody that wants to keep black music exclusive for black people, so other people won't be inspired by it. There are millions of different people from every different creed and color. That's what the music we do is about. It's about all the people we need to enjoy. It's not a color-coded view. JK is on his feet again, prancing around the room. In regards to the other stuff, I meant exactly what I said. It still sticks. I was talking up on a scale there. It's planetary, not individually. It was heartfelt. It is heartfelt. I woke up one morning. I thought, this is my first album. I'm going to write something here from what I, I feel, what I think. Consequentially, from writing things that you question, you think. Look at yourself now. Driving a fast car. Should I have this? What do people think? But then, hold on, I can have a life, I can enjoy myself, I can have a few things to enjoy myself with. If the car's part of the job, then damn right. It's something I wanted ever since I was three, and I'm going to drive a fast car. Very fast. Do what it's used for. Kick back and, let's face it, inspire myself. That's the thing, JK, he's well, he's intense. Angry, pulmonic, and intense. He's a verbal freewheeler, and this is... And this can make his train of thought hard to follow, but no longer the wide-eyed space kid hollering, Chiba, with a little plot by the next spliff. You engineer your life, you engineer life for yourself. Well, I do anyway. I try and engineer life for myself. Try to lock all the bits into place and try to learn every time there's a fork in the road and try and take the right fork. The fork you're you're supposed to take 
all the time. That one, that one, not that one. Try to get where you have to go. I haven't got the full answer to where I want to go yet, but it's a bit locking in nicely. I know it's all for something. It'll all turn out for something decent at the end of the day, and that's what I mean. His reflexibility, his, his reflexivity is endearing. J.K. captivates a room with the same lyricism that captivates a twenty-two thousand strong carnival crowd. So what does that make of his? So what does he make of his success? Sometimes you think, hold on a minute, is this all bullshit? What's it all about? Because sometimes it can make you feel stupid. You think, why does everyone want to know about you for? It's really weird. At the same time, I could, it can make you feel really proud. I mean, sometimes I wake up and think, interview, great. Some, someone's going to ask me what I think about things, and I'm going to tell them. Deep, dirty laugh. In, and he tells what he thinks about a lot of things, like how in the early days he was slowly and surely spiraling into fair criminal activity, like how he's been living life fast and he may die young. The number 36 has always held some relevancy pauses. But it ain't that I hope that I live to be a good Capricorn granddad, nice and energetic. He wants to do well, he states. He can provide for his kids, create a stability for himself, never realized. He never knew his Portuguese father, and his mother was a jazz singer performing all over the country. But his childhood, he was quick to point out, has shaped his future. When I was a kid, I always set so many tasks and chores, there was nothing left to do but sing. He's on his feet, pointing at the imaginary Junior J. Break those leaves, enters the violin chorus. No, seriously... I just went about singing and muttering and mumbling, and then later on, when I started a trip out of my mind, I tried to do a 32-piece orchestra with my mouth. Everything from Johnny Cash, Johnny Guitar Watson to Stravinsky. He giggles at the memory. J.K. is not as coy as the record label would like to subject to its classes dabblings. But with this, but with this in mind, I asked him about the thinking about the behind the track on the new album, High Times. It's about the current state with crack. That, ri- that ring that a lot of young kids, without sounding patronizing, are falling into. It's it's just drugs, the street, and then selling your arse. And what I'm basically trying to do is try it. What I'm basically saying is don't, don't do silly drugs. But doesn't that sound a bit like do as I do? Nowadays, I try to stay away from those, and I don't know what the long-term effects are drugs. Well, I've never done loads and loads of ecstasy, and that is the one drug around that don't that you don't know about you see when acid you do you know if you take too much you will end up in the nutter look at me i'm halfway there at least i managed to stop but dope that's a great big deal that's no big deal the other drugs are worth the drug other drugs aren't worth taking simply they're crap anyhow music makes a lot of sense than drugs that's how i get in my high. That's how I get my highs. That's how I want my highs. But the highs extend to more than that. They also extend to being in control of your of my personal life. And being in control of my personal life means being able to do music. And that is the drug. It's it's work. But it's not because it's fun. It's pleasure. I get the buzz off this. The buzz is making the environment where I could do all the time and no one can boss you around. The drugs the drugs are just a get through thing. Well they're not. They can be inspirational, but they can also be a pain in the arse. Just a bit boring. So you make so you are making the distinction. Are you drawing a line? 
I still haven't said anything, but you know, it's a typical business. Everyone needs to escape and sometimes take the wrong turn. Oopsie daisy, and it's a dead end. But it's alright, because my car does a fantastic donut in the middle of the street, whips, whips back down the other end to the main highway. JK, laughing at his own analogy, it's pretty, pretty soon it's contradictionsville. After towing the anti-drugs line with an aplomb, he quips, Don't take drugs beginning with a Q. Do you take a? Do you want a Quaalude? Sorry, mate, I don't do drugs beginning with Q. Then it's off on a helter-skelter trick through Jayland. He mimics an acquaintance of the past. What a Quaalude? I've got some lewd. Good a tamazi, tamazapam. Good job. I don't, I, I don't like marzipan because every, every time I hear about tamazapam, I associate it with the nasty cakes, wedding cakes. Battenberg. Battenberg is particularly the worst cake in the world. Derek, his drummer, is creased on the floor. It's probably not best. It's probably best he not to laugh. But frankly, Jay is quite funny. He managed to halt the tangent there, and J.K. focuses on something else. He's saying to saying no to of late. The Remix Brigade. Sony commissioned David Morales to produce a cut of Space Cowboy. The result was a dance floor smash, and the exercise has been repeated on Virtual Insanity. J.K. is reputed in. Le- to be less than over the moon. Yeah, well, there's a certain aspects I didn't like, but he did do a good job. Everybody else liked it. What, what, what can I say? The Mad Professor is currently working on the the new album's reggae-ish tune, Drifting Along. Who else would uh, JK sanction on the remix front? I like to do... It's like us to do them, and we are, which is why I'm. they're turning out 100% better. We've got a couple of gems. We've got a remix of All Right, but that was done by DJ Desire, JK's old mate Darren, and a mix by me, Derek, and Toby we did on Cosmic Girl. We'll think of a couple of others to do. Trouble is, though, you go on tour, and they go, now we've got a remix done. We've got we've got no time. This there, And here's one you've done earlier. And you go, I don't like it. And they go, oh, well, it's already it's out already, so where are we going to stop that? Jamiroquai have their critics. It's easy to build someone up in order to indulge in knocking them down. Time Out apparently had them scheduled for a front cover on care on the carnival issue and then pulled it in conjunction with a pretty damning album review. Balancing mass appeal with musical cutting edge is a difficult to env- to envisage. But whilst Whilst those around are Brit popping and drum and spacing, JK and the band are still trying to be true. Asked if they were to consider doing a cover version, Jay gets animated. Gil, Gil Scott Harone's Lady Day and John Coltrane. That is like the one. I can really sing with it. I know we could really work with the lineup that we've got. Bit of brass, perfect. Drums, wrap off the wrap off the beat, no problem. JK is a half-cocky fuckwit. Half charisma with old-school tees. And Jay is the man who held safe in the knowledge that he possesses the, possesses the voice of both both so rare and sublime. It's a voice worth three million record sales and a voice that people could listen to, whether it's a melody or a hyperbolic overdrive. I just hope everyone likes the album, and the next one will be better. You know where you heard it first, as promised. They'll get better and better until the day truly will make the time and that sits amongst the greats. It's great. To, it's great to be something that makes you get up and go yes and jump. I mean, it's the thing that it's the thing. I mean, the thing is what I'm doing now, let's face it. What I'm doing now was only a vision in the first place. So whatever is envisage you to come to your true self, yeah, visualization. I suppose at least he knows where he's coming from. 
And that's the end of a great interview uh, with JK from 1996 from Blues and Soul magazine for September 17th through 30th of 1996 in an article called Moving in Direction by Susan McClellan. And that article is available for a complete view and reading over on the article's archive of the old Jamiroquai fan site called the Jamira site. And you can find that link to that article down below, additionally, in the description area of this episode of the QuiCast podcast. So be sure to check that out in your own time. Coming up yet next is yet another segment of Jumeirah Fan Reads. This time I'm going to be reading the liner notes penned by JK from the 2013 20th anniversary double CD reissue of Jumeirah second album, The Return of the Space Cowboy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen of the online family. Welcome to the second segment of Jumeirah Fan Reads, which of course is my recurring series here at the QuietCats podcast, where I read uh, old interviews, articles, and passages about the band members uh, and of course the band Jumeirah from the last 30 years of their history. As I prefaced in the end of the last episode of Jamiroquai Fan uh, Reads, I'm going to be reading the liner notes, which I previously did uh, on a previous episode of the QuietCast, where I read the liner notes to the Traveling Without Moving 2013 20th Anniversary Double CD Edition that was written by J.K. himself. This time, I'm going to be reading from the second album of a uh, reissue from uh, 2013 of the 20th anniversary edition of the two CD release of Traveling and Moving that was penned by JK back in the year, of course, 2013. I hope you enjoy this read through, and here we go. After the success of the first album, I wanted to go straight on with the second. I was hot on the trail of it, and I realized the danger in lolling around too long too much and wasting time. The intention was to go back into the studio over Christmas with our drummer at the time, Nick Van Gelder, who played on the first album. Said he was off on holiday. I said to him, er, well, don't go on holiday too long. I've got a big studio booked. We're in the game now. We've got a proper budget for the album. We've got a budget for strings. Everybody being very nice to us, giving us everything we wanted. I told him we're in the game now. We can't afford to lose the momentum. This was three or four months after Mercy Planet Earth had came out. By that time, we had been out and toured and done all the promos, so as soon as I could book us into the studio, Nick said he was going on holiday for four to five weeks, and we already were getting on, having constant arguments, usual band stuff. So I thought, sod this. We'll start looking for a new drummer. The first day, Derek came in to audition, and we wrote just another story from scratch and then recorded it in one take. We didn't have anything written before we went into the studio. We were coming up with it all on the spot, and just another story, it was an amazing start. I knew a couple of people who had been blown away and stabbed. The streets were very ruthless in the, this time, in this period of time, as I remember, and I wanted something that reflected what I wanted in the, from the real streets of San Francisco. Filmic, anthem kind of vibe. We started out with the dark bass, then Darren, the DJ, comes in scratching, and then Derek's doing his these stuttering, gritty fills, all very 1960s, 1970s scratching and like a TV soundtrack type. Then we went perfectly with the lyrics and the story of the track. It was important to me to have the music and the lyrics match somehow. The finished track was phenomenal, hard and rough, and I thought, the drummer's great, he's the man. So that was that. Derek was in the band. At this point in the proceedings, life didn't couldn't have been any better. As a band, we were improving. The influence of Derek was just making us better still. Our street cred was right up there, and we were in the cool zone. Everybody wanted to know us. We were hip. We were funky. We were in the game. 
it was getting a lot of nice uh, attention from lots of very lovely ladies. And all in all, we were all very pleased with, I was all in all very pleased with myself and my choice of career. People were responding to the music and the messages and the lyrics and things that I was saying in interviews. And most of all, we had just come off the back of a successful album, which was well on its way of selling one and a half million copies. And we were off to a flying start with the next one. Then second album syndrome suddenly kicked in and we were all came to a crashing definite halt. Every everybody goes through it. The thing that had the thing of how to follow what do you did on the first album. How to say what you've already said, but to say it better and fresher, while matching the first album's success and everyone else's expectations. After an initial great start, I remember being totally uh, totally up against it, null and void of ideas and how to get around. I wanted to push everything and make it better, and I remember not being happy with anything we, we were doing and scrapping stuff and starting again. What made it worse was the fact that I had been getting deeper and deeper into the whole drug thing. I had gone from bit of weed to a few magic mushrooms to hoofing up lines every time I needed inspiration, and by now I was going off of my mind with it. I started to think, oh God, this is a nightmare. The record company wanted to know what we had got, which was, wasn't much, but they kept saying of what we, what we did have, none of it sounded like singles. Everything we were doing was so complex, the chord, the key changes, it was all very ambitious because I wanted to push things, but it was even harder for us to get our heads around. Everything was more delicate. Songs were more chord and bass line driven. They were much, much harder to get the melody for. And that's where it was all falling apart. The melodies and the words. It, I was becoming indecisive. I'd scrap lyrics, rewrite everything, and I didn't know what I was doing. Everything was just so fucking difficult to get done. Stillness and time was a track that came into when I was at my lowest. I was going out of my mind, basically, and I was... A it was an appalling time in my life. I was sat there in my flat on my own. I hadn't been out and seen anyone in days. I was trying to write lyrics and melodies. But I was off my trolley, but I couldn't. And suddenly, the sheer soul-destroying loneliness of where I was in my own head made something click. There's a stillness in time, which I cannot define. Does your mind, does your heart bleed like mine? For a place we can go, where all the troubles of our time are far away. And I have, and I all and I have all my life in front of me. Now my darkest days are trouble-free. The sweetness, the stillness, and time was really wishful thinking. The hope that things would get better. Like a lot of tracks on this album, I was writing it on my own for self-healing. It was always we, not me. I was telling myself that we could do this. I realized that I was getting myself in a lot of trouble, and if I wasn't careful, I was going to be throwing it all away before I had even started. And that was fucking terrifying. When I didn't finally get back to the studio, the record company would be getting worried, still asking where the singles were, and we still didn't have any. We still didn't have any many to show them, but I had come up with another sweet melody and a lyric. Yesterday I was half the man that I used to be. Oh, maybe that's because you're the other half of me. Toby came up with a beautiful keyboard part. It was very quickly we had half the man which went, would go on to become the second single from the album. It wasn't quite the lead track the record label was looking for, but it was a good start. Again, another song that's deceptive in its sweetness. It's actually sort of the homage to having had a twin and not being around. He died soon after we were born. And that sense of always having a part of me being missing, but it also doubles up really nicely as a love song. Mr. Moon was the only one of the sweet songs that I didn't have a subtext. It was a love song for a girl that I met at a rave one night who decided, uh, who I decided was the one. No doubt thanks to the acid I'd done. I thought the planets had aligned. I thought it was written in the stars. I met the girl of my dreams. She was absolutely gorgeous. And after five hours of talking to her, I decided this was it. I thought I'd, I'll 
be buried by the morning. Then I left her for two minutes and Toby copped off with her. So that was the end of that. Hence the line, my destiny seemed to slip away from me before I got to know your name because Toby copped off with her. Still, Toby did a great job putting what putting what is an incredibly complex chord structure to the song, so I forgave him. The thing with me in the studio is I can get really bored really quickly, which is why when you're writing, we tend to go back and forth between hard and soft songs. I don't remember which order everything was recorded in, but I can pretty much guarantee that after Mr. Moon, we came, we either came up with Light Years or The Kids. Light Years has a very heavy vibe to it, and The Kids is just aggressive. And I wanted to do something aggressive, something that captured the feeling of the streets all the time. There was a real tension in the air, like people didn't didn't like being youths. But this is the time of legal raves, which seemed to panic the powers that be, and the criminal justice bill was about to be brought in to allow the police to wrestle anybody who went to one. It felt like kids were being demonized. Once we had the riff, the lyrics just seemed to feed off it. The kids got a funky soul and groove of motion. But if you don't give the kids a chance to use it, they're always more likely to abuse it. Everybody's talking about the kids. It's taking time for you to realize. Now, no, hunger turns to anger in their eyes. I say the revolution will be televised. The, the kids really stood a test of time. If I... If you play it over the footage of riots in 20, 2011, it fits frighteningly well. The other track that really said something was Manifest Destiny. It's so beautiful and tender, but lyrically heavy. I'd be reading Bury, the, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, D, uh, D. Brown's album about the massacres of Native American women and children at Wounded Knee, which were justified by the doctrine of Manifest Destiny. The belief that all indigenous people will always be slaves and white people will always be the conquerors. That the, that the only good Indian being is a dead Indian. It's quite full on and got me so angry that I felt I had to get it off my chest. It was one of those few tunes in the writing of this album that I felt absolutely sure that I what I was doing. It came together like a dream and the chorus was spot on. And there's something so fragile in the vocal. But then it was fragile. I wasn't in a good place. Sometimes I'd be in tears writing these songs. I was fighting for everything. Every track was a battle. The turning point in the album was Space Cowboy. It was written about halfway through recording when the album was still on top of me. My drug intake was completely out of control and I was losing my mind. I was desperately trying to get myself back from the brink of before it all went wrong. We hadn't even finished our second album and I already felt everything slipping away. I needed a comeback anthem. Space Cowboy was it. Everything think, every, everyone thinks it's a nice song about getting stoned. Which it is, but for me, it was much deeper. When I when I write, I tend to jump about first person, third person, and be a smoke and mirrors. Is it about me or someone else? Is it about marijuana and cocaine? What it is about was someone who was law, very lost, trying to hang on and come back before he drifted off into a black hole never to be seen again. Writing that was my bid to restart the program. Thankfully, it did exactly that, because it finally gave me the lead single I, we were looking for and the momentum to push on and finish what I still, th still think is one of our most creative and accomplished albums. And this was written by JK in March of 2013 from the 20th anniversary uh, reissue of Jamiroquai's second album, The Return of the Space Cowboy. And that's the end of the QuietCast podcast for the month of March of 2022. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as uh, I said in every portion of this episode of the QuietCast podcast for the month of March of 2022, all the links to everything before mentioned in this episode can be found down below in the description area below this episode of the QuietCast podcast on both YouTube, Import, and of course on Anchor FM. Um, and I will hopefully be having some more content coming to you very soon, covering some more of the latest news of Jameer Kwai here on the QuietCast podcast. 
podcast when the time is necessary. But as always, this is Jamiroquai Fan 2000. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you again really soon with much more Jamiroquai related content, news, and happenings here on the Quiecast podcast. Bye bye, everybody, and take care. <laughs>